All right, friends, again, welcome to CCC. It's good to have you here. Um, if you have any questions, if this is your first time to our church, we'd love to uh, talk to you about any questions you have about CCC or about uh, the leadership here or anything else. Uh, we'd love to meet you. So please come up to me or Gray or anyone you see up here, really, um, um, to introduce yourself. So today we're going to move forward and continue on our series through the life of Jacob. And if you've been with us for a while, this series uh, through the life of Jacob is just really taking a look at Jacob's life. And the other series we're doing through the book of John, we're going to put that on pause until we end our sermon on the series of Jacob next week. So this is our second to last sermon in the series of Jacob's life. And if you remember, throughout the series of Jacob's, uh, 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 series of Jacob, and as we see his life, we see a man who's restlessly self-reliant and God-forgetting. Meaning that when push comes to shove, he would often disregard God's will and take matters into his own hands. Let's take briefly a brief look at the whole story again, beginning with God's promise to Abraham. This is where Jacob's story begins, you can say. God made a promise to Abraham, who is Jacob's grandfather, that one day Abraham's descendants will become a great nation. And that Abraham will be the father of this great nation. And a great big nation or big tribe represented peace, protection from outside threats, presented a community, represented human resources that could gather food. See, the promise of becoming a huge self-sustaining tribe is everything for people back then before grocery stores and law enforcement. They needed a way to provide for themselves, to protect themselves. So this is a much coveted and a much desired promise to have. And Abraham had a son, so he therefore continued on this promise and blessed Isaac to be the father of this promised nation that God promised. And Isaac, as we've seen, had two sons, Jacob, the younger son, and Esau, the older son. And Isaac decided to pass this promise to become a father of a great nation to who? To Esau, the older brother. And it's at this point where we see the relentlessly self-reliant Jacob, the God-forgetting Jacob, taking matters into his own hands. He wanted it, so what did he do? He lied to his father Isaac, he manipulated his blind father Isaac, and he stole the inheritance that his father Isaac was going to give to his older brother Esau, to himself. This got Esau really mad, and as a coward, like a coward, he ran away from home, avoiding Esau. So Jacob, historically, has been a relentless, self-reliant god forgetful man. Now, yes, this Jacob, who we've seen as self-reliant, and Jacob, whose name itself means liar, we've seen him to be God-forgetting and sinful. But as we've seen in the story, he is a sinner whom God loves and God is committed to. Even though he didn't deserve this promise to be father of a great nation, he did, after all, steal it. God yet still graciously allowed him to keep it. In Genesis 31, we see God telling Jacob, who's ran away from home, to go back home. Go back home to the place where Esau chased you away, and there, God says, I will fulfill this promise that you'll become the father of this great nation, that you'll have this future peace, and, 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 and I will make it happen. And, and this is where our passage comes in today. This is Jacob on his way back home, trusting that God will keep his promise. Now, last week, we're getting closer to our passage here. Last week, we saw that Jacob, on his way back home, trusting in God and his promises, he was confronted by who? By Esau, his older brother, who he stole this inheritance from 20 years ago. And we also see now that Esau has an army with him. 
and he could still be angry. And if Jacob were to continue forward and trust God's word, he'd be risking a whole lot. Look at verse 22. Look at all that Jacob had to risk if he were to push forward and trust God. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Everything else that he had. If Jacob were to push forward, risk and, 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 and put himself in danger to follow God, he would be risking not only his life, but the life of his two wives, the life of his servants, the life of all his children, along with everything else that he had, the end of verse 22 says, everything. Our passage today is all about God's way of giving Jacob peace in order that he may remain faithful to God's word and continue forward home where God has promised to make him into this great nation despite of the fear and anxieties that he may find on the road there. Friends, is this not our dilemma today? Is this not what we face today? Are we not also frequently crippled by the fears and the anxieties of life thrown our way, which often derails us from obedience to God? Do we not also, like Jacob, often become self-reliant, taking matters into our own hands? And this is God motivating us too. There's a lot of ways that God motivates us through his word. One is sometimes he rebukes us. Other times he encourages us. And in this passage, we see him encourage us move forward toward obedience by dealing with our fears and with our anxieties. Three points I want to talk about today. Why is it so hard to have a God-centered peace? How God gives us a God-centered peace? And how do we know that we have a God-centered peace. Why is it so hard to have a God-centered peace? How God gives us a God-centered peace, and how do we know that we have a God-centered peace? Let's move on to point one. Why is it so hard to have a God-centered peace? Now, we've seen in verses 22 and 23 just how severe a risk Jacob is taking for him to obey God. And the setting of the scene in verse 22 speaks in it too. It says that, in verse 22, it's nighttime. Now, nighttime in the book of Genesis, often like in the book of John, represents danger, stress, peril. However, I do want to be careful. Although we talk a lot about how big Jacob's sacrifice is, I don't want us to implicitly think this passage is only meant for those who are taking these big, colossal-type risks for God. As if this text is limited only to missionaries who are going to rural places. As if this text is only meant for Christians who are in areas that are experiencing constant, explicit persecution. This passage is definitely for them, but nonetheless, it's for us sitting here today as well. You may not be risking your life in your obedience to God, but maybe you're risking losing a client as you remain faithful to God in your business practices. You may not be risking your possessions, but perhaps in your obedience to God, you're risking losing the image you once had from your peers in the past. Because now in Christ, you're trying to arrange your life according to him and not according to the world. Or perhaps you might be risking your pride as you obey God's word to forgive those who's wronged you and also ask for forgiveness to those whom you have wronged. Or maybe you're experiencing the risk of being single. Because as you grow and mature in a Christian walks and love for God, 
you encounter a devastating realization that the person you're currently dating may not be the kind of person your Lord and Savior has prescribed for you to be married to and or be united in covenant union with. This text is for you. For those of us here trying to arrange our lives according to the Lord, I know that in our attempt to be obedient to him, we have at one point or another confronted a risk like Jacob here does. And is it not true that when we're confronted and when we're put in such situations, does it not make us feel like Jacob vulnerably alone in the dark? Verse 22 not only says it's night, but verse 24 says Jacob was left alone. Now, whether this was, as Calvin says, a way for him to pray, or maybe this was just him scared of moving forward, either way, the point is, verse 23, he sent all his servants, all his family, all his protection ahead of him, and he was left alone, vulnerable in the dark of night. We're all familiar to this feeling, aren't we? This feeling that sprouts out when the seeds of vulnerability is planted in the soil of uncertainty and darkness. What feeling comes out? Fear. Anxiety. Now, let me just quickly say, it's not always wrong to be afraid. John Flavel, a a Puritan who wrote this book, which I suggest you get, called Triumphing Over Sinful Fear, has a very helpful distinction, I think, that distinguishes between natural fear and sinful fear. Natural fear is a kind of fear that necessarily exists in a broken world. Scripture tells us the world we're in right now is not as it should be. Romans 8 says that we groan, awaiting the day that when all things will be made right. But right now, there's pain, there's sadness, there's death. They all still lurk their heads. So when a drunk driver wobbles his car your way, or if your child is undergoing a major life-threatening surgery, it's not sinful to experience a measure of natural fear and anxiety. That's what a broken world does to us who are not originally meant to live in it. Now, what makes a fear sinful, he continues, is when the natural fear we experience causes us to trust ourselves more than we trust God when the natural fear that we experience causes us to take matters into our own hands, disobeying him and his word. Now, I'm going to use pretty strong descriptions here, but hear me say that I point the finger to me and myself first and foremost. I experience this all the time. But when that happens, when we let our natural fears cause us to distrust God and forget God and take matters into our own hands, we're living as if there's no sovereign loving God. We're living as if it's up to us to save ourselves from our natural fears. It can be said we're living as functional atheists. Yes, we worship God on Sunday morning. Yes, we go to Bible studies and community groups. But if I really want to know what your theology is, if I really want to get to know what you believe in, I'm not going to go to a Bible study and listen to your answers when you're on a comfortable chair. I'm going to take a look at your decisions when you're confronted with natural fear. I'm going to take a look at the things you choose to trust when you're at the darkest of nights. Then I'll see your theology. Then I'll see who you put your trust in and who I see I put my trust in. Again, I struggle with this just as much as anyone here does. 
Now, perhaps this difference of natural fear and sinful fear is not that clear. Perhaps the concept uh, we're not really convinced yet and needs more convincing. So let me, for clarity's sake, give one example from the Bible, then one example that I think many of us here have experienced. First, a story from the Bible. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the New Testament, you see Jesus Christ himself experiencing fear in the Garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion. He actually experienced a tremendous amount of natural fear, not only from the future physical pains of the cross that he has to bear, but from the wrath of God he was going to take on behalf of our sins. But yet, this natural fear that Jesus experienced in Gethsemane did not turn into sinful fear. Because at the end of the day, Jesus said to the Father, let thy will be done. Then, in the midst of all this fear, he moved forward obediently toward the cross, despite of his fears. That's why, although Jesus experienced fear in the garden, the Bible can still say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, that Jesus is he who committed no sin. You see. So apparently, this fear he experienced in the garden was a sinless fear, or as John Flavel puts it, natural fear. Now, let's take an example from our own stories of when natural fear can often be tempting and can often turn into sinful fear, derailing us from obedience to God. I want to use one of the examples that I briefly glanced at earlier. You're a single man or woman in your late 20s. You've recently received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And as you grow in your faith, you're slowly convicted of the biblical view of dating. And that is, the Christian should not date purposelessly. And if you date somebody, you should at least have some kind of intention for a future marriage. Now, I intentionally said that very carefully. I didn't say you must know 100% that you're going to marry them. I said you should at least have some kind of intention of future marriage. Okay, so hold your emails. (laughs) So now you continue in your faith and you grow. And you begin to see Scripture's clear teaching of who it is a Christian should marry. 1 Corinthians 7.39 A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Those last four words. Only in the Lord. A Christian is free to marry anyone who is in the Lord. In other words, who has received Christ as Lord and Savior. So then, guided by integrity unto the Lord and also reasonable deduction, you clearly see no reason to date somebody who is not in the Lord. But then, you look at the people that you know who are in the Lord. For some reason, there seems like there is no eligible bachelor that you are drawn to. Either they're way too mature in their Christian walks to where they intimidate you, or they're way too immature in their Christian walks that they can't lead you. I'm not saying those reasons aren't valid, Sure, some people might be too young in their walks. Some people might be intimidating. I'm just saying, for whatever reason, you don't find a Christian you're drawn to. But one day, this girl or this guy enters your life who, as far as the creaturely eye can see, is flawless. And to your surprise, he or she shows interest in you. Here it is, you say. You're seemingly one hope of avoiding loneliness and have romantic companionship. But then, I know it's a long story, sorry. (laughs) As you get to know them, you see their life, 
and it clearly shows they're not in the Lord. They don't understand the gospel, and they're not living out the gospel. Enter what? Natural fear. Fear of what? Realizing that if you trust the Lord, if you hold fast and follow his prescription for love and marriage, this guy or this girl, along with anyone else who was not in the Lord, is not one you are to give yourself in marital union to. Enter natural fear of potential future loneliness. And oftentimes that comes out in anger. Why are you so restricting, Lord? Do you not see how tiny you've reduced my pool to? Okay, fine. I'll say no to him. And I'll just be single for the rest of my life. That's what you want, right? Are you happy now? But you see, really behind all that anger is a fear. Is a fear that if you obey God's commands, you you won't find anybody. And you'll be lonely. Now, to feel that natural fear of potential future loneliness isn't in itself sinful. It's scary. I'm not undermining that. I'm not caricaturing you to some kind of... uh, It's scary. But when that natural fear causes us to disobey God and do things our way, that's when it becomes sinful. Some of us just straight up disobey. By the way, this isn't a reference to anybody here. I don't, I've never had this conversation with anybody here. This is assumptions of what I think is going on in our hearts when things like this happen. Others just straight up would disobey. Others might say something like this. Well, the command to marry in the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 only applies very specifically to a widowed woman in that particular era, but not to me or anyone else that is not in that very, very, very specific category. See, that very obvious misunderstanding of the Bible is not a result of your inability to read the Bible. It's caused by a natural fear so deep, it's haunted you. To where it can cause, as John Flavel says, a dark night so bleak, prompting even the best of men to forsake God and cling to the creature. I get it. I really get it. I don't mean to make light of that situation. It's a very legitimate fear. And if you're not currently in that position, empathize. Do not presume that you won't experience it if you are placed in it. Now let's go back to Jacob, to the passage here. Let's look at Jacob. He's experiencing what? Natural fear. Esau's army is approaching. If he continues down and follow God's word, he'd be risking a whole lot. He feels alone in the dark. But friends, it is in this darkest hour where God met Jacob. And interestingly enough, not as a comforter, not as a cheerleader, but as what? As an apparent enemy who challenges him to a wrestling match, which is how God often feels like in these moments, right? An enemy, a foe in our stories. But this is the process. This is how God imparted to Jacob and how God imparts to his people today a godly peace that, as Paul says, is beyond understanding. Let us take a look at how. Second point, how God gives us God-centered peace. Let's read verse 24 to 27. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. 
Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. There's a lot there. Let's take a look at it. This man, whom Jacob professes to be God himself in verse 30, challenged God in his darkest night. I mean, challenged Jacob in his darkest night to a wrestling match. And and in verse 25, weirdly enough, you see God losing to Jacob. (laughs) But then it's clearly obvious uh, that that God allowed himself to lose out of mercy. How do we know that? Look at verse 25, because this man, God, so easily put Jacob's hip out of joint just by touching it. Makes it clear and obvious Jacob's victory here was not earned, but graciously given to him by God. Also in verse 26, we see Jacob asking God, this man, to bless him. And back then, the lesser only asks the greater to bless them. It's clear here. Jacob's victory over God was a gracious gift from a greater God who willingly submitted himself under Jacob's mere human strength. Now, for some reason, this weird event gave Jacob the kind of peace that would cause him to overcome his natural fears over Esau. And as we see in the next chapter, he will choose to obey God despite the risks of losing everything. How? How does God letting Jacob win in a wrestling match do all this? Well, Because by letting Jacob win, God is communicating something very profound here. Now, I know we said it clear that God allowed Jacob to win, but let's not move too quickly from what the text is trying to emphasize, that Jacob still won. He actually victored against God. Think about that statement. The God who merely spoke and demolished Pharaoh's army under the Red Sea, the God whose presence caused a whole mountain of Sinai to shake and burn in flames. A God who tore down the walls of Jericho, the Alpha, the Omega, the ruler of the cosmos, the one who has power over all men and even over death itself. This God, Jacob, prevailed against. And because Jacob won, God changed Jacob's whole identity and his name in verse 28. That once meant liar to now meaning, uh, to now Israel, meaning He who has striven with God and men and have prevailed. This gave Jacob courage, you see, because he has prevailed against God. And if he's done that, then surely no man can overtake him, not even Esau and his whole army. That's why God said, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. See, Jacob realized to to have prevailed against God and still fear Esau's army is senseless. It's like overcoming the heavyweight champion, but then running away from the random swings of a toddler. It's like defeating a beast on your journey, but then getting thrown off course and derailed over the presence of an ant. It makes no sense. Esau's whole army was but a toddler, an ant, compared to the awesome power and majesty of God whom Jacob here has prevailed over. Don't you see who you are, Jacob? God is trying to say, you've overtaken me. And if you've overtaken me, what else shall you fear? However, again, it's clear for Jacob that this victory, quote-unquote, over God, was given by God graciously. Verse 30 says, For I have seen God face to face, and yet, note, my life has been delivered. He didn't say, I've seen God face to face, and I have by my own strength delivered myself. No, I've seen God face to face, and my life has been delivered. God here graciously allowed Jacob to overpower him. 
In other words, Jacob's victory, stick with me, is less like a boxer who overpowers another boxer by punching them. Jacob's victory over God is more like when my daughter overpowers me when she looks into my eyes. I don't allow her to overpower me. I don't give her control over my finances. I don't give her control over my time because she has forced me by her sheer strength unto submission. But because I love her, that love has led me to freely, upon my own uncoerced will, submit myself for her, you see. God here looked upon Jacob, and he, was, he is in love. He allows Jacob to overpower him. And by doing so, God has committed all of who he is to Jacob. What else is there to fear? It's as if God is saying, I, the one who effortlessly holds all men, Indeed, the stars and the galaxies under my providential hand, including Esau and his little army. I'm letting you overtake me, Jacob, because I'm on your team. That's why God's people are victorious, the Bible says, even over death itself, because God, by his gracious free will, has submitted himself and vowed himself to use all his powers that transcends death itself for your aid. When Paul said we are more than conquerors, he wasn't trying to be cute. If God is for us, who can be against us? Famine, sword, death, Paul asks in Romans 8. What are you risking? What are you risking in your journey toward faithfulness, in your obedience to God's commands? Are you risking singleness because you're trying to order your romantic life according to God's word? Are you risking a loss of revenue because you're trying to order your business according to God's ethics? Are friends bullying you at school because you want to manage your conduct according to what pleases God? Is your family's acceptance at risk because you won't worship any other God but the one true God? Is your employer's opinion of you at risk because you refuse to compromise holiness for the sake of making deals? What's at risk? Do you not see how small those things are? compared to the eternal God who you have by your side. This is the message God is trying to tell Jacob through this wrestling match. This is what gave Jacob boldness to move forward and face Esau. Notice, friends, notice very carefully, God's method of giving Jacob peace is not just by telling him to think generic positive thoughts. Just think positive thoughts. Just don't think about the bad things. That won't do it for you. Now, not all kinds of positive thinking is bad. The Bible says whatever is noble, holy, and good, think of these things. But there is a kind of positive thinking that says, just ignore the bad stuff. Just don't think about them. Friends, this kind of positive thinking will not produce in us a godly peace. It'll produce in us an ignorant peace. A kind of peace that is fully dependent upon ignoring or suppressing reality. You see, neither did God give Jacob peace by taking the threat away. That won't do it for us either. See, in order to give Jacob peace, God chose to wrestle Jacob. God didn't wrestle Esau. Why? Because that wouldn't have given Jacob godly peace. It would have produced in Jacob avoidant peace, a weak kind of peace that is fully dependent upon the lack of natural fears, not a powerful one that can withstand them. 
God is not interested in his people having ignorant, suppressive, avoidant peace. Why not? One, because that kind of peace doesn't last. It's like a vapor that vanishes at the smallest gust of troublesome wind. The second the realities of a broken world and natural fear confront us, it puffs away. And two, it's still functional atheism. You don't need God to have a peace by ignoring and suppressing problems. People do that all the time. That's actually the leading cause for substance abuse. You don't need to have a God to have a peace when there is no natural fear. But God in his sovereign will often gives us commandments that if we follow them, it could lead us straight into Esau's army, so to speak, straight into natural fear. See, when people think about the story of Jesus saving his disciples from the storm in the New Testament, they often forget that Jesus himself was the one who led them into it. But why? Why, God? Why do all this? Because as valuable as it is to learn about God in a Bible study and in a community group, as much as we should do more of that, there's a kind of learning that can't be done from the comfort of a chair. I heard an athlete tell a coach one time in the gym, I want to get bigger. You know what the coach responded? Well, then I'm going to have to give you something heavy. You want to get bigger? You want to grow? He's going to have to give you something heavy. You want a sturdy, godly peace that both glorifies God and is sturdy for you against all fears. You want a peace that isn't dependent upon the lack of problems or the suppression of truth. You want to follow God in the light of day, and even if his word brings you to the darkest of nights, to still follow him. You want that? He's going to have to give you something heavy. So as we've seen in verses 22 to 24, the natural fears um, this broken world imparts to us makes it hard uh, to not sin and trust ourselves. We've seen in verses 25 to 30 how God encourages us to follow him. Even if his word leads us to the darkest of nights, obey me, trust me. Don't rely on your own senses. Don't rely on your own power. You have my power before you and beside you. But how can we know if we're actually growing in this peace? How can we know that in us, God is producing godly peace? Point three, how do we know that we have this God-centered peace? Well, friends, we know we have a godly peace when we walk our lives, not with our chest puffed up, trusting in our own creaturely strength, but when we walk our lives with a limp, trusting God in his strength by remaining obedient to him in times of trouble and not on our own devices. Verse 31, the sun rose upon him, Jacob, as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Look at the setting. The sun is rising up, signifying an end to Jacob's season of peril, signifying a newfound peace in Jacob's heart, But what gave Jacob this peace? What kind of Jacob is revealed to the reader as the sun illuminates the scene? Not Jacob with a larger army than Esau. Not a Jacob with 
Rambo-like features and equipment, what do you see? A Jacob with his face set like a flint, moving forward in obedience to God, trusting in God's deliverance, limping toward an army. See, anyone who's encountered God like Jacob has will walk life humbly, meekly, as a limping man that trusts not in his own strength, but relies fully on God's and obey him despite the risks. This is when you know you're beginning to have a godly peace. When you stop walking life trying to overpower your natural fears by your own schemes, but by persisting in obedience to his will, trusting that whatever cost our obedience may be, his power, even over death itself, will deliver us. Is this you? Do you find in yourself a godly peace that when you're confronted with natural fear, you stay faithful, you boldly obey no matter the cost? Or, friends, are you like me? Do we often get derailed? Do we often take matters into our own hands when the going gets rough? Well, if you are anything like me, we often do get derailed, don't we? We try to follow his word, but falter at the slightest risk. We worship him on Sunday mornings. We say all the right things in community groups and Bible studies. But when natural fear comes, we take matters into our own hands, do we not? Justifying our disobedience a a thousand different ways. Well, you might say it's easy for Jacob to have that kind of godly peace. He's seen God come down in the flesh. He's experienced uh, uh, subduing God and overpowering God and been, been graciously by God given a victory over him. He's experienced all that. Of course, Jacob can have this kind of godly peace as he walks to an army limping, but I haven't seen that. I haven't experienced that. Friends, yes, we have. <laughs> he has come to, down to us in the flesh, has he not? He submitted himself to be overpowered by us, has he not? Is that not what the cross is all about? Listen to Paul's words in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, in reference to Jesus. For in him, the person, the flesh of Jesus, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, fleshly. Jesus is God in flesh who has come down to us. And not only did he allow us to beat him in a wrestling match, he allowed us to kill him on a cross. Why? To pay for our sins. Because all of the times that our natural fears derail us in our obedience to God, because every time we become functional atheists, during our darkest nights, because all the times we decide to live life as if our creator and our redeemer does not exist, that's why he came down and died for us. In the flesh, graciously allowed us to prevail over him. And by doing so, taking all the wrath meant for us upon himself and imparting unto us eternal life, power, even over death itself. You see, in the garden, Jesus was confronted with the ultimate natural fear, the full wrath of God he was going to bear on the cross, yet he stayed his course. Why? So that we, his people, who deserve God's wrath for our constant functional atheism, wouldn't have to experience it. He laid down his life so that we wouldn't have to die. He was abandoned by the Father in his darkest hours so that we will always have him in ours. 
You see, he was overpowered by us unto a cross, not because we've beaten him down with our religious points, but because he's looked upon you like a father looks unto a child, and he's overtaken with love. And he freely submits himself, lays down everything, empties himself of everything but love, the song says, for your aid. Do you realize God has graciously, by his free will, allowed you to overtake him? What else do you fear? Why rely on the devices of men when the one who has authority over all men has by grace allowed you to prevail over him? Now, you won't walk out of the sermon magically changed. You won't all of a sudden experience a godly peace um, that is that is supernatural. Maybe God will grant you that. Good for you. But for the most of us, it's going to take slow and many dark nights. But each time, remember the cross where God has graciously allowed you to prevail against him so that not even death, death, the chief of all our fears, have any power over you. And in that darkest night, go, trust him, obey, proceed, not with a puffed-up chest trusting in your own strength, but with a limp, trusting in his strength by keeping obedient to his will no matter the cost. For he, the God of the cosmos, has vowed by grace that his eternal powers are to be used not against you but for you because the wrath we deserve has fully been placed on himself when he allowed us to overpower him and crucify him on that cross. So next time you're confronted with natural fear, don't avoid it, don't suppress it, don't ignore it, face it head on, not with your chest pumped up, but with a limp, trusting in his ways. Because through the cross of Christ, even death itself has lost its sting, and we be more than conquerors. Pray with me. Father, the amount of natural fears we are to encounter in this life, we have encountered in this life, has proven us weak. It has placed us in our proper place, and we can't hide anymore. We can't hide with our uh, bold readings of statements of faith, although we should do, still do them. We can't hide anymore with our going to Bible studies and community groups, although we should still go to them. We can't hide anymore with the pretentious religiosity we often place in front of us. When the dark of nights come, we see who it is we worship. We then see our true theology. We then see who our functional God is. And oh Lord, have we been proven short. Oh Lord, have we been proven rebels to you and lovers of the creature. Forgive us, Father. Thank you for your cross that you have forgiven us. You have taken all the wrath that we have deserved upon ourselves unto you. And now in your cross, as you've allowed us to prevail over you, we can in confidence walk, not trusting in our creaturely strength, but in your word, boldly into the darkest of nights, knowing we are more than conquerors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.